Spectrum's next. The Science and Technology Show on KALX Berkeley, a bi-weekly 30-minute program bringing you interviews featuring Bay Area scientists and technologists, as well as a calendar of local events and news. Good afternoon. My name is Brad Swift. I'm the host of today's show. Today is part one of a two-part interview with Delia Milliron, the Deputy Director of the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab Molecular Foundry. Delia Milliron is a chemist. She received her undergraduate degree from Princeton and her Ph.D. from UC Berkeley. Delia leads a research group at the Molecular Foundry, which has recently spun off a startup named Heliotrope Technologies. Her group is a partner in the newly announced Joint Center for Energy Storage Research, a multi-state Department of Energy research hub focused on developing transformative new battery technology. Delia's group was recently awarded a $3 million grant by the Department of Energy Advanced Research Projects Agency-Energy, ARPA-E, for her work on smart window technologies. On to the interview. Delia Milliron, welcome to Spectrum. Thank you. I suspect that most of our listeners have heard of nanoscience, but don't have a lot of perspective on the detail. Would you explain what makes nanoscience and nanotechnology unique? Sure. So nanoscience is about investigating how the properties of matter change, sometimes quite dramatically, when we structure them on the nanometer scale, which is really the the molecular scale. So in a sense, it's quite related to chemistry, but it's about materials and matter and how their behavior is very different than what you'd expect from macroscopic pieces of material. Would you like some examples? Sure. An example would be great. Okay. A classic example is to look at the optical properties or just the visible appearance of gold. And everyone knows, of course, when gold is macroscopic, it's shiny and it's yellowish. And we're very used to that form of gold. When you make gold in the form of nanoparticles, so things that are, let's say, between 5 and 50 nanometers across or containing a few thousand atoms per particle, then the gold no longer looks either yellow or shiny. In fact, you can make a stable dispersion or solution of gold at that scale in water and it appears translucent and red in color and this effect of nanoscaling in gold has been used to color artistic objects for centuries, but we've only recently begun to systematically understand the science of how these sorts of properties can change so dramatically when we make materials in the nanoscale. So the actual doing of it has been done for a long time, but the understanding is what's more recent and the the ability to And the ability to control and deliberately manipulate, yes. So there are plenty of instances of incidental or 
almost accidental creation of nanoscale materials and utilization of these nanoscale effects on properties. But the science of it is about systematically correlating the structure and composition of materials to their properties. And then the nanotechnology or the engineering of, of nanoscale materials is about deliberately controlling those properties to create new functional things, objects, devices, and so on that we can use for useful things all around us. And what are some of the common things that we find nanotechnology in in our daily lives? As with any new technology, the first applications are fairly pedestrian in some sense and don't require the most exquisite control over the materials. So one that's quite common is to use metal oxide nanocrystals, typically things like zinc oxide or titanium oxide in sunblock. These materials absorb UV radiation to protect our skin from damage from UV, but because they're at the nanoscale, instead of looking white, can be clear. And so it's aesthetically much more pleasing to put on some block that then appears clear but still does the job of blocking UV radiation. So this doesn't require very fine control over the details of the structure or the size of the material. It's only important that the scale of the oxide particles be well below the wavelength of light, and that's what makes it clear. So it's a very simple use, but nonetheless very practical and helpful. What are you finding are the challenges of working with nanoscale material? It's all about taking that control to the next level. Chemists have learned for a long time how to manipulate atoms and create bonds and put them together into small molecules. Now we're working with structures of a somewhat larger length scale and wanting to control different aspects of their composition and structure. So there are no ready solutions for deliberately arranging the atoms into, let's say, a 5 nanometer crystal with precision um, in order to generate the properties that you'd like or, again, just understand them, frankly. So both the creation of materials with precise control and a detailed understanding of what their structure is are still very big challenges. Of course, conventional microscopy methods don't extend very well to these small length scales. So there's a need for new characterization approaches. And then, as I said, the chemical methods for making molecules and small molecular systems likewise don't necessarily translate to the slightly bigger scale, that is nanometer length scale of these materials. So we need uh, innovations on all sides, making new materials, new ways to look at them and characterize them. And then finally, the third piece is the theory that helps understand their properties and predict new properties. Again, it's a sort of an awkward in-between length scale where atomic detail matters, but larger scale aspects of how the materials come together matters as well. And that's very difficult to approach with computational methods. So we're seeing the frontier of nanoscience is pushing scientists from all different disciplines to advance their tools and their techniques in order to really take advantage of what can be done at that length scale. Delia Milliron is our guest. She is the deputy director of the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory Molecular Foundry. She is a chemist working at the nanoscale. You are listening to Spectrum on KALX Berkeley. You've talked about a nanometer. 
Yes. Is that a new form of measurement? And how does it relate to anything else? How do, how do we reflect on a nanometer? Sure. So uh, it's not a new measure. It's you know simply a meter times 10 to the minus ninth. That's what, what nano means. And a uh, more conventional measure on that length scale might be an angstrom, which is a traditional measure. It's one order of magnitude smaller than a nanometer. But to put it in more practical terms, I like to think of the nanocrystals that I work with, for example, which are about five nanometers across, are about a million times smaller than an ant. So that, for me, gives me a, a sort of practical reference point. As a chemist, it also makes sense to me to think of a five nanometer crystal as containing about a thousand atoms, but atoms are not necessarily a easy to understand length scale for, for everybody. So the, the ant is maybe a more common reference point. What promising nanomaterials have been created and what about them makes them more promising than another? Depending on the realm of properties that you examine, promising has all sorts of different meanings, right? So things like semiconductor nanowires or perhaps graphene or carbon nanotubes may be considered promising for new electronic materials because the transport of electrons through these structures can proceed quite unimpeded and move very readily so that we could have fast electronics or very conductive transparent thin films to replace the things we use today in our flat panel displays and so on. Other nanomaterials are very promising for diagnostics of different kinds of diseases or even for therapy of different kinds of health issues. So there are biological probes being developed that can be directed into specific areas of your body, for example, where a tumor site is located using a nanoscale magnet. And then they also carry a payload of drugs that can then be released specifically at that site. So you could have targeted therapies. So these sort of multifunctional nano constructs are very interesting, I would say promising in the long run for, for new targeted therapies that have many fewer side effects than these broad spectrum drugs that we commonly use today. In terms of coming up with new nanomaterials, is it as often the case that you're trying to create something for a specific purpose or that you accidentally find something that has a characteristic that can be applied pretty widely or to a specific use? I think that much of nanomaterials research is motivated by the investigation and discovery of new phenomena. And I distinguish that from targeted application-focused development because it's often unclear what a new material or its phenomenological characteristics will actually be useful for. In my lab, uh, we do tend to think of practical connections, but then the ones that we ultimately realize could be very different from the one that motivated us at the outset of the project. So I think as a scientist, it's important to be attuned for surprising opportunities to apply materials in ways you didn't anticipate. And so you have to be aware of the needs that are out there, the big needs in society, basically paying attention for how the phenomena you're discovering might map onto these societal needs. You're probably, as a scientist, not going to be able to take 
a new discovery all the way through to a practical application. But if you don't at least identify those connections, it will be difficult for engineers and industry to take your discoveries and turn them into practical applications. So there's a role on both sides to make that connection. Mm-hmm. You are the deputy director of the Molecular Foundry at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. Tell us about the foundry and the work going on there. So the Molecular Foundry is a very special place. It's one of five Department of Energy-funded nanoscale science research centers, which are located around the country. And we have the mission of pushing the forefront of nanoscience, broadly defined, so nanoscience in all different aspects, while at the same time acting as a user facility to help others in the scientific community, be they academic researchers, industry, others at national labs, move the science in their areas forward by leveraging the tools of nanoscience. So in effect, it becomes this amazing hub of activity in nanoscience where people from really all around the world are coming to us to leverage capabilities that we are continuously advancing and developing in different kinds of nanoscience, be it inorganic nanocrystals, which is my focus, theoretical methods for treating nanoscience, completely out of this world in my mind, um, spectroscopic techniques for looking at nanostructures. All these things are being developed at the foundry at the absolute bleeding edge of nanoscience. And these can have impact in all different areas. And so our users come They work with us. They learn these state-of-the-art techniques, generate new materials that they can take home with them to their own laboratories, integrate into their materials and processes and devices and so on, or do their uh, specialized characterization on. And the amount of science that results by that multiplication and leveraging is really very exciting to watch. So it's, it's a hub. It's an intersection of ideas in one place of problem motivations from different perspectives, and then it it branches right on back out to impact science in in all different ways. What sort of a funding horizon are you on? Uh, So we have very stable funding from the Department of Energy. These centers are quite new. They were only established over the last 10 years. The foundry has been in full operations for about six years. And they are very much the flagship capabilities of the Office of Science within the Department of Energy and will be for quite some time to come. So they are making a very stable and continued investment in this area and continue to see the the value and opportunity for really, in the end, American economy, taxpayers, and industrial innovation that's generated by all of this scientific activity. You're listening to Spectrum on KALX Berkeley. Delia Milliron of Lawrence Berkeley National Lab is talking about her work in nanoscience and nanotechnology. What's the focus of your research? So my research involves the innovation of inorganic nanocrystals, which are a few nanometer diameter crystalline arrangements of atoms, and they're using these as building blocks to construct materials. So we put them together with each other into 
for example, porous architectures or we put them together with polymers or we put them together uh, with glassy components to construct macroscopic materials, often thin films. And we're interested in these primarily for their electrochemical functions. So electrochemical devices are useful for things like batteries, supercapacitors, so storing energy, also for converting energy. And in our case, we've most recently been focused on electrochromic window applications. So these are function like batteries, but instead of storing charge, they have the effect of changing the tint on a window dynamically as a function of voltage. But everything starts with the nanocrystals and new ways to put them together with other components to construct materials. And is the crystal material something unusual or is it real commonplace? It varies, actually. Most of the materials that we craft into nanocrystals are well-known and have been studied for a long time in their bulk form. So just as in the example of gold being very different in bulk and obviously useful for all sorts of things like currency now having very different function on the nanoscale, we work with materials that maybe are not quite as commonplace as gold but nonetheless fairly common. So one material we've been working with a lot lately is called indium tin oxide. And whether you know it or not, you probably use it every day. It's the material that provides conductivity in flat panel displays, touch screens, all of these sorts of things. And so in its normal thin film form, it's obviously very well established and used around the world for all different applications. It was only synthesized in a well-controlled way as nanocrystals in the last few years. And in the nanocrystal form, it has all of these wonderful properties relating to electrochromic windows. And beyond that, it has, I guess I should say more fundamentally, the phenomenology underlying those windows applications is that this material is plasmonic, which means that it can effectively condense uh, near-infrared light to a very small scale can amplify the electric field from the light, basically manipulate light in a new way. And people have been doing this with metals, like gold is one example and silver is another, for a while, and a whole new field of plasmonics has emerged. Um, now, with ITO on the nanoscale, we're bringing plasmonics into the infrared region of the spectrum, which is going to give us whole new opportunities for manipulation of light of that sort, channeling light, and so on. So the as I was saying earlier, the, the phenomenology is where we spend the most time and, and discovery of these plasmonic characteristics of ITO is going to lead to many, many applications. The one we've been focusing on is this electrochromic window idea. Is this one of the real opportunities within nanoscience that when you take a material to the nanoscale, you get all this new behavior? That's the fundamental concept underlying the investigation of nanoscale materials. And so the NNI, the National Nanoscience Initiative or National Nanotechnology Initiative, which was started you know, over a decade ago now, had as its founding principle basically that idea that we would investigate the properties that emerge when materials are made on the nanoscale that are very distinct from what we see on the macro scale. And from this, uh, we would have a whole new playbook for creating functional materials and devices. There's been talk about the idea of 
transparent failure mm-hmm. being a good thing in science. So you can learn from what goes wrong. Yeah, science is full of failure. Most things don't work, especially when you first try them. So I like to say that in order to be a scientist, you have to be unrelentingly optimistic because your great idea that you're incredibly excited about probably won't work, or at least it won't work initially, and then you have to try again and try again and try again. And often it won't work even after you've tried again many, many times. And you still have to have the same passion for your your next great idea that you wake up the next morning and you're excited to go try something new. That belief in possibility, I think, is fundamental to science. But at the same point, yeah, I think you're right. The failures are not merely something to be discarded along the way to success. And they do teach us a lot. And frankly, they suggest the next great idea more often than not. So we have in mind uh, something we're trying to do and a complete failure to accomplish that, whether it's a bond we're trying to make or a way we're trying to control a shape of a material or to create a specific optical property. We get something we didn't expect and that should and when science is functioning well does cause you to stop and think about why that's happening. In fact, maybe the challenge, some of the challenge in doing science is not becoming too distracted by all of the possibilities that emerge when you do that. It's a mistake, of course, to be too single-minded and focused on an end goal too early because you'll, you'll miss really all the new phenomena. The things that you least expected are often the most important and innovative. So you, you have to pay attention to these things and perhaps redefine them as not being failures, but rather being a new success or a new seed of a success that can take you in a new direction. That said, there probably are things that even in that, from that perspective, can be viewed as a negative result or a failure. And there's an important role. I mean, the scientific literature is is full of every scholarly article has to include a transparent reporting of the conditions that led to what's being defined as success or specific result and a recording of what happens elsewise basically because that allows you to understand much more deeply where that successful result emerges if you understand the conditions that lead to failure and different types of failure. So definitely for understanding's sake, this is essential. This is the end of part one of our interview with Delia Milliron. The finale, part two, will air December 28th at noon. Don't miss it. The Molecular Foundry website is foundry.lbl.gov. Now the calendar with Lisa Katowicz and Rick Karneski. On Saturday, December 15th, Science at Cal Lecture Series will present a free public talk by Rosemary A. Joyce, a UC Berkeley anthropology professor, on everyday life and science in the pre-Columbian Mayan world. Joyce will discuss how the Maya developed and used their calendar, which spans almost 1,200 years ending around December 21, 2012. The End of the World She will explore the observational astronomy made possible through the use of written records, employing one of the only two scripts in the world to develop a sign for zero. 
The lecture, which is free and open to the public, will be held on December 15th from 11 to 12 a.m. in room 100 of the Genetics and Plant Biology Building on the UC Berkeley campus. Tomorrow, December 15th, Wild Oakland will have a free one-hour walk from noon to one to find and identify mushrooms around Lake Merritt. Meet at the Rotary Science Center on the corner of Perkins and Bellevue. The walk will be around the grassy areas surrounding the boathouse and the Lake Merritt Gardens. Learn to read the landscape and find where the mushrooms hide and their role in the local ecology. Bring guidebooks if you have them, as well as a small pocket knife, a paintbrush, and a jacket. Visit wildoakland.org for more info. On Saturday, December 15th, the American Society for Cell Biology welcomes the public to its 2012 keynote lecture. The event will feature Stephen Chu, Nobel Laureate and U.S. Secretary of Energy, and Arthur Levinson, Chair of Genentech and Apple, Inc. Hear about the future of science and innovation and view an art exhibit by scientist-artists Graham Johnson and Janet Iwasa. Attend the art exhibit and reception from 5 to 5.45 and then stay and listen to the speakers from 6 to 7.30 p.m. Free pre-registration is required at ASCB.org. The event takes place at Moscone Center West, 747 Howard Street in San Francisco, Saturday, December 15th. The Regional Park's Botanical Garden at the intersection of Wildcat Canyon Road and South Park Drive in Tilden Regional Park in the Berkeley Hills hosts the Wayne Roderick Lecture Series. These free lectures are on Saturday mornings at 10.30 a.m., and are on a variety of topics related to plants and natural history. Free tours of the garden begin at 2 p.m. Tomorrow's talk features Dick O'Donnell, who will discuss the floristic surprises in the drought-stricken Southwest. And next Saturday, the 22nd of December, Steve Edwards will talk about the botany and geology of the Lassen region. More information on the series is available at nativeplants.org. Beginning on December 26th, the Lawrence Hall of Science will begin screening an interactive program in their planetarium called Constellations Tonight. A simple star map will be provided to help participants learn to identify the most prominent constellations of the season in the planetarium sky. Questions and activities will be part of the program. The presentation will continue until January 4th and will be held every weekday from 2 to 2.45 p.m., Tickets are $4 at the Lawrence Hall of Science after the price of admission. Remember, that's beginning on December 26th. With two news stories, here's Rick Karneski and Lisa Katovich. Nature News reported on December 11th that the U.S. National Ignition Facility, or NIF, at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory is changing directions. NIF uses 192 ultraviolet laser beams that interact with a gold capsule, creating X-rays. These x-rays crush a 2mm target pellet of deuterium and tritium, causing fusion. NIF has not yet achieved ignition, where it may deliver more energy than it consumes. IEEE Spectrum criticized the project for being $5 billion over budget and years behind schedule. In the revised plans, NIF will scale back the focus on ignition and would devote three years for deciding whether it would be possible. It would increase focus on research of fusion for the nuclear weapons stockpile stewardship program and basic science. It would also devote resources to other ignition concepts, namely polar direct drive on Omega at the University of Rochester and magnetically driven implosions 
on the Sandia Z machine. The journal Nature reports that rose madder, a natural plant dye, once prized throughout the old world to make fiery red textiles, has found a second life as the basis for a new green battery. Chemists from the City College of New York, teamed with researchers from Rice University and the U.S. Army Research Lab, to develop a non-toxic and sustainable lithium-ion battery powered by perperin, a dye extracted from the roots of the matter plant. Thirty-five hundred years ago, civilizations in Asia and the Middle East first boiled matter roots to color fabrics in vivid oranges, reds, and pinks. In its latest incarnation, the climbing herb could lay the foundation for an eco-friendly alternative to traditional lithium-ion batteries. These batteries charge everything from your mobile phone to electric vehicles, but carry with them risks to the environment during production, recycling, and disposal. They also pump 72 kilograms of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere for every kilowatt hour of energy in a lithium-ion battery. These grim facts have fed a surging demand to develop green batteries. Growing matter or other biomass crops to make batteries would soak up carbon dioxide and eliminate the disposal problem. The music heard during the show is by Lostana David from his album Folk and Acoustic. Made available through a Creative Commons license 3.0 attribution. Thank you for listening to Spectrum. If you have comments about the show, please send them to us via email. Our email address is spectrum.kalx at yahoo.com. Join us in two weeks at this same time.